We're in Genesis 35. We're coming to the end of the um, narrative material on Jacob, and we are about to start the last part of the book, which is on Joseph. Joseph receives the longest treatment in the God book of Genesis in terms of <clears throat> total, um, total space given, and he's very important, as you'll see in a minute. But uh, Genesis chapter 35 is, again, uh, on Jacob, but it's the last major segment of Jacob's before um, the tragedy of what happens to Joseph and then how God, uh, it explains to us how God gets uh, Israel down to Egypt. So um, let's look at verse 1 with all of the material that hopefully you can remember. And uh, I think, didn't we finish, we finished uh, the tragedy about Dinah last week, didn't we? Chapter 34, I thought we did. So God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to, the, to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Question, where is Jacob? When God gives him this directive. In Shechem. He's in Shechem. Very good. He is in Shechem. So just. So if you take the, the map that, um, that I gave to you, I hope you remember that, the one that is Abram and Canaan, or actually uh, the other one I gave you, the age of the patriarchs, you will be able to find it there too. So Shechem, remember, uh, is that very important site associated with Abraham, earlier with Isaac and Jacob, altars had been built to the Lord there. Bethel is south of Shechem. But because Shechem is near the Jordan River and Bethel is higher in the Judean uh, hills, the Judean mountains, he'll have to go up. That's why the text is saying it that way. So go up to Bethel. Now, do you remember? I'm, I'm just making sure you can tie all these things we've studied together. How important was Bethel earlier in Jacob's life? He stopped there on the way up to Uncle Laban. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you remember what happened in Bethel was where God had appeared to him, the, the ladder, remember that, that stretched from heaven to earth and so on. So this was, this was a very important place for, for Jacob. It, it is an important element of his life because that is where he begins to allow God to correct him of his manipulative, controlling, uh, duplicitous character trait. And God breaks him in Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 32. So now he is walking, in a sense, he's walking with God, uh, and he's obedient to God, and God is saying, this is important to me. You had said you would go back to Bethel. You had said you would renew your commitment there. Go back to Bethel. So Jacob, verse 2, this is really important. This seems to me to be an insight into how much Jacob's character has changed. So Jacob said to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. What's he doing? He wants his entire family to get ready for worship, to get ready for this recommitment to the Lord. Now, you know, what happens sometimes in life is we get straightened out with the Lord, we um, are walking with the Lord, and we start to experience the blessing of the Lord, and we're kind of at a fork in that spiritual walk with him. We can either deepen that commitment to him through loving obedience and walking in loving obedience with him, or we can allow the comfort and blessing of the Lord to kind of settle us into a complacency. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or you're, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? In other words, this, Jacob's at one of those points. He's in the promised land, which God had promised him. Um, he, has, 
he's reestablished what is really important in his life. God has broken him of that very serious character flaw. And so you see him taking leadership. I will obey the Lord. He wants me to go to Bethel. I'm going to go to Bethel. But family, we've got to get ready for that. We have to get ready for this time of recommitment, rededication. And so he asserts that leadership. Now, why does he say to them, put away foreign gods? They have them. Do you remember who particularly had done something which brought foreign gods into the family? Rachel. Do you remember? When they were leaving Laban, she took one of his idols and put it in the, the pack on her camel and sat on it. And I don't know if you can remember back those several chapters. She is in her menstrual cycle, and it's just an incredible polemic against these foreign, worthless stone uh, gods. But Jacob is saying, we got to get rid of that stuff, which is really amazing to me that it's still there. And then the other thing is that they have to purify yourselves and change your garments. That's a little more... It's a little more difficult for us because this, this is before the full law has been given with all the purification rites that are in the Levitical Code. Do you understand what I mean? But yet still, God must have revealed to Jacob and to others among the patriarchs, there are certain things that are really important to me, certain rituals and traditions that are really important to me. And so Jacob is intuitively asserting his leadership of this family. We must do this. Then let us rise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I go. Would you already do something in Bethel when he went up the first time? He did. He, had, he, he did, that stone, that's right, he did. Mm-hmm. And that's where he made a vow to the Lord. And that's why the Lord wants him to go back, as he said he would do. But I want you to notice the language that Jacob is using here in verse 3. And I want to argue again, here is evidence of a changed man. Here's evidence of a man who is no longer relying only on his own controlling and manipulating and conniving way of doing things. Notice how he says it, and it's in the present tense. To the God who answers me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. That is a pretty terrific testimony of a changed man. Not a perfect man. You're going to see some evidence of some of the old Jacob, just like if I'd follow you around and you would follow me around, I guarantee it, you would still see some of the evidence of the old man in me. But I'm saying, and I want you to really grab a hold of that. Verse 3 is really an important verse in just giving us some evidence. Jacob has changed. So he's testifying to his family as the leader of his family. I want to go build an altar to the to the God who answers me. He has been faithful in responding every time I got in a pace of difficulty. He has been with me wherever I've gone. That has echoes of what, what the Lord had said to Abraham, what the Lord had said to Isaac, and what he had you know, I will be with you. Jesus said, let's make it applicable to you and me. Jesus said before he goes back to the far, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So Jacob is walking with his God in such a way, which is enormous change, that he can testify before his family of why he wants to go to Bethel. Is there a parallel today for us? I mean, we're not over there, but we're here. And, um, like, we come from Maryland. We, we travel different places, but it's our road in our lives. Uh, I mean, can, you, can you speak to that, that what would apply to us today, similarly? Um. 
that's a general question, so I'm not quite sure how to answer it generally, but let me give a stab at it. Um, I think what we see in Jacob in verse 3, as I've said a couple times, is the evidence of a changed man, that God is very much working in this man's life. Fred, I think, not to our own glory and not to our own self-elevation, but the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we should be able to give evidence of the change he is doing in our life, the transformation he is doing in our life, so that we can do just what Jacob did, give a testimony. This is my God who answers me. This is my God who's been with me whenever, wherever I've gone. His promise, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, I will never leave you, I know, is true. And my life is a testimony to that. I'd love to share that with you. I mean, that's part, that, that, is ex, that is extremely applicable to every one of us around the table. And it is applicable to every person in the scriptures that walks with God. God transforms them. And God's promise, I will never leave you and forsake you. And where that is particularly important, right now we're in a comfortable room, at least it's reasonably comfortable. I'm getting very warm, but that's me. But we're in a comfortable room, and it's a fairly nice fall day out, but tomorrow a massive catastrophe could hit our lives. So can we still give the testimony of God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone? The answer to that should be yes. Yes, no matter what happens. My God has been faithful to me. You've heard me say this many, many times. Uh, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is always, always, always faithful. And as a very dear friend of mine used to say, who mentored me many decades ago, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, guess who moved? It wasn't the Lord. So that's, as Forrest Gump said 21 years ago, that's all I have to say about that. All right, so I just, I, I really wanted to key on in verse 3, because here we see this is not the old Jacob. This is the changed Jacob. So they gave, verse 4, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now this is a bit problematic. I'm just going to do a little exegesis here. A little bit problematic. Are the rings in their ears referring to the idols or are the rings in their ears referring to the people? And it's hard to know that. It's hard to know because we do know this. There have been some very significant archaeological finds that have indicated idols with rings in their ears. So it would seem to me reasonable to conclude that the rings that are in their ears are referring to the idols because it was not evil to wear rings in your ears. Now, you could wear rings in your ears as an idolatrous symbol to a a foreign god. But necessarily, just wearing rings in your ears is not a sin in the Old Testament Testament culture. So I I guess I just want to alert you to that, that the issue there is to whom are the rings referring? The rings that are in the ears of the idols or the rings that are in the ears of the probably the women, uh, more than likely. But the text just doesn't particularly help us to know that. So for whatever it's worth, I think probably it's referring to the rings that are in the ears of the idols, which you would be tempted to take them off and put them in your pocket to either use them later on for yourself or melt them down. But no, they're attached to and associated with idolatry. So everything, everything must go. And so what does Jacob do? He buries them under the terebinth tree. Terebinth is a, is a type of tree in the ancient world. Uh, you can see them today if you ever go there near Shechem. Okay? That reminds us, as Joe said correctly, Jacob's in Shechem. And he's about to travel up to Bethel. Very fascinating verse. It's, it's always one of those instances in Scripture that you kind of wonder, why is the text telling us this? And as they journeyed, now they're journeying from Shechem, going south to Bethel, pretty much along the Jordan River Valley. And they're going up in elevation. And the text says, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, 
so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I mean, it's just an interesting comment. I mean, and then then he comes to Bethel. I mean, what's it telling us? Well, it's telling us a couple of things. Number one, that God is protecting Jacob and his family. Two, it is already, remember, these cities are Canaanite cities. These aren't friendly people. But they are going, they're entering into the hill country where a lot of the cities and towns are of the Canaanites. The name Luz, which is what, but Luz is a Canaanite name of a city that, that he's headed toward. But I'm saying all that because it's just fascinating the reputation and the care and the blessing of God upon Jacob and his family's lives is spreading throughout Canaan. There's a new guy in town. I'm making that up. But there's a new guy in town. And he really stands out. He seems to be experienced. And we're hearing all these stories about what had happened up in Padma Run. We're hearing about, and we know about Abraham, because Abraham is, had, he, he has passed away by now. But Abraham and all that he had done, I mean, the Canaanites are starting to hear about this whole new group of people that are in Canaan. And don't forget, Jacob has 11 sons, one daughter, four wives, and lots of servants, plus a huge number of animals. Remember, he left Laban, a very wealthy man. So, I mean, it, the, point that the, the point that this verse is, is, is making is God is protecting him, but God is also, through all that has happened, the Canaanites are alert to there's a new guy in town, and he's different, and he's got the blessing of a god that we don't know about that's different. And they're afraid. Yeah, afraid. Wouldn't that be something because of the apprehension they have for what what these young well, these boys did to That's that's a good point in Shechem. In Sh- that's right, in in revenge from Dinah. That's a good point. Um, what had happened to the inhabitants of Shechem from the Simeon and and Levi when they took revenge on, uh, of Dinah's rape? That's a good point. So I mean, it's just a lot, a lot's going on here. It's starting to infiltrate the Canaanite sense of something is going on here that we're not used to. Just a general question that's been on my mind a couple of weeks. When when we say cities, when the, when it's talking about cities, there, can you speak to? How many people would that be? Yeah, don't think of New York or yeah. Chicago yeah. or Baltimore. <laughs> these you and I would call these villages. Uh, that all almost every city, and it was true of all the cities of Canaan, had walls around them and so on. Inhabitants within the city would probably be in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Jericho, uh, thousand, several thousand. AI, smaller. You're talking. I'm going fast forwarding a little bit to the to the conquest under Joshua later on, but uh, yeah, you're talking hundreds. You're not talking about anything that large. Sure. No. So, um, after they kill all the males of Shechem, it says they, they took the wives or the, the women and the children and all that. You know, so that it was the city then basically abandoned. Did they take them with them in their travels? Did they kind of enslave them? I don't believe so. Uh, and in, in, in not certainly the way you think and I think of slavery necessarily, but they would uh, they would perhaps be servants of Jacob's clan, which is a growing clan. Whether they took them all with them, Ed, I just don't know. The scriptures are silent on that. They they really are. But back to the first part of your question, uh, yes, initially uh, that whole area would be abandoned because everybody was basically either driven out or killed in terms of the men and so on. But Shechem will rise again. That is, that is. Uh, can I go down a bunny trail real quick? In the ancient world, and when I led my trips to Israel for many years, there are just many, many examples of this. Um, the ruins of all of the cities of the ancient world are what we call tells. Did you ever hear of a tell? It's it's a it's a big mound. I mean, if you're looking like if you and I would look across, say, a valley and we see this big hill in the distance, more than likely that's a tell. What that means is it's just layers and layers and layers of cities. Because usually a city is 
built or constructed for strategic reasons. I mean, it's high or, you know, guarding a valley or something like that. And so what you would do is you'd conquer that city and that city would fall and then you build it again. You just build another layer. I mean, it's just, and, and the city of Megiddo, which was a great, great fortress city right in the center of the Jezreel Valley in the uh, Galilee area, uh, there are 27 layers of cities at Megiddo. There are some, there are some that you're in, you're in 50 layers. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever, the city of Troy, you know, Helen of Troy, all that stuff that's Iliad and the Odyssey. There, there are seven major layers of that city in the struggle in archaeology, which, which layer is referring to the Trojan War. And so you dig down and you start looking at pottery and, and you can figure it out. I mean, you really can. It's a science to that. So Shechem, Ed, Shechem will be rebuilt very quickly and re-inhabited very, very quickly because it is a very important uh, and very strategic location. And so, yeah, yeah. So they're very small. You're not talking about a lot of people, and you're not talking about um, you're not talking about once a city is conquered or that it's abandoned. That happens later on with some of the cities, but you got to get quite a bit into history. All right, verse five, uh, verse six. So Jacob came to Luz. Luz is the Canaanite name, and Luz many argue, is a city, town, village, whatever you want to call it, that had been dedicated to a Canaanite god, which is really interesting, that it now becomes Bethel, Beit El, the house of God, which is what Beit El, Bethel, means, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El, Beit Ale, which is really interesting. Let me write this on the board because I want you to just see something. This is in Hebrew. Ale. It's really, you pronounce ale. You might want to think you pronounce it L, but it's usually pronounced ale is a one of the many names or titles of God that complement these other two major titles or names, proper names of God in the Old Testament. Elohim is the name or title given to God in chapter 1. He is the creator God of Genesis. Yahweh comes into uh, the name and title of God in chapter 2. This is, uh, sometimes in English we pronounce it as Jehovah. But remember, in Hebrew, there are no vowels. It's just a language of consonants. Those vowels are added later on. So now this is, so this is one, this is two, this is a third one. And so what Jacob is doing here is he's, he's naming this place God, the house of of God, because bait means house, and this means God. So it almost sounds like it's redundant, but it isn't. This is the place of God. This is the house of God, meaning this is an altar that I am building to hail the Elohim and Yahweh of the people of Israel. So. It's like, a, it's like a significant wordplay that Jacob is doing in naming this place to the glory and honor of the God who answers him and who has been with him wherever he has gone. So it's, it's extraordinary what he's doing here. I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary. Because he says, here God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So what he had promised God he would do he now has done. He's going back to Bethel. He has rededicated and recommitted himself to that relationship with God, and he names the place again, Ale. This is God's place. This is a house of God. And remembering that the Canaanite name is Luz, which was a name of an ancient Canaanite god, if I use the word polemical, does that make sense to you? This is very polemical. This is the one true and only God triumphing over 
the Canaanite polytheistic worldview. God delights in doing that. It's subtle, but you see it all over Scripture. God making a very clear polemical comment. I am triumphing over these foreign false gods. He will do that in Egypt with Moses and Aaron. The ten plagues are polemical. It is the dismantling of the entire Egyptian worldview. And I mean, you could just go on and on. There's just so many things. When under Joshua and they're in the conquest, the same thing is happening. And uh, I would suggest that God is doing the same thing today in a variety of ways. I'm trying to make this really come alive instead of just teaching, but you're all playing living statues, so I don't know if it's getting home or not, but would you? I think it's important to note that Jacob was really grateful. Absolutely. 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 And, 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 and it's like you said, he was when he was working with his his, his people, his family. Yep. It, it was a testimony. It is a testimony. About, about what God has done for him. And he's like probably trying to mentor and help his family understand. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I mean he is this is this is this is the different Jacob after Genesis 32. And I mean, that, that's encouraging, but it's again the evidence we see throughout the scriptures of how God changes people. Because, I mean, Jacob, I don't know about you, but when we first started studying Jacob, Jacob's not a nice guy. I mean, he really isn't. He's not a nice guy. But God made a promise to him. And so God's going to break him, he's going to transform him, he's going to shape him, he's going to keep that promise to Jacob. He is the covenant line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, one more point. It's just, just interesting how the Bible does this. It's like out of nowhere, he announces something else happens. He, meaning the Spirit, announces something else. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he calls this place Alan Bakut, which again is Hebrew for... Um, uh, the Oak of Weeping. Who is Deborah? It's the first time we're introduced to this name, but it's not the first time we're introduced to this person. You go back to chapter 24, verse 59. She was the nurse, the caretaker, the close confidant of Rebecca. And when she dies, she's 180 years old. 180 years old. You see, what's starting to happen here, and this is that we're going to see several of these that are going to follow in the remaining chapters of the book of Genesis. The patriarchal era is coming to an end. Do you understand what I mean by that sentence? The patriarchal era is coming to an end. The era of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is coming to an end. Because we're going to see in just a short time that... Jacob's wife is going to die. She's going to die giving birth to Benjamin, their last child. And so, I mean, it's just slowly but surely, the text is helping us to understand we're in a time of transition. And that time of transition is all the patriarchal leaders are going to die. And that's by the end of Genesis, the patriarchs are gone. And then the next book of the Bible is Exodus, and what's that all about? the birth of the nation in the little cocoon of Goshen on the Nile Delta. The plan of Jacob is going to explode to a whole nation. And then that's what the liberation... So the shift is soon, in terms of the biblical narrative, the shift is soon going to be from individuals to a whole nation. I just want you to notice, and this is just one of those little markers. The patriarchal leaders are dying. They're passing from the scene. Okay? Now, verse 9 through 15 is a very, it's a very important segment. There's nothing new here. It's just reminding us of a couple of things. God appeared to Jacob again. 
When he came to Padam Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Now again, all the text is doing is summarizing what's happened. He's now in Bethel. And what is God doing? Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob. Israel shall be your, shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now that had initially occurred in Genesis 32 after that wrestling match. Do you remember that? So you're just seeing again, God is stating, Jacob, you have a new covenant name, Israel. And so it's different. this is your new covenant name. That's why from here on out in the, in the New Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament, the people who are with Jacob and all his descendants will be called the children of Israel. Because Israel's Jacob. But Israel is his covenant name after God had broken him. And remember, Israel, and you see El, you can see it in there. Israel is those who strive with God. And the history of Israel is what? Striving with God. Okay. That, again, you're with me, aren't you? You're living statues there. Okay, Fred. Um, in what form did uh, you think he appeared here? Because in the prior verse or chapter that you cited, <clears throat> there was a physical presence. Well, um, I you know I don't know. The text is not specific here. At at least it's an audible conversation, if you will, that God is having, which is very typical of the patriarchs, both Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that all experience that. There's no evidence here of a theophany. Remember what that means, an appearance of God? There's no evidence of a theophany, so God at least is just audibly communicating again with Jacob. Jacob, you're my covenant man. What I promised to Abraham and what I promised to Isaac I'm now promising to you. That's why the Bible speaks of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what God does here is he just reminds Jacob of the promise. What's the promise? You have a new covenant name. What's the covenant promise? Verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Another name. Now God had revealed himself with this name to Abraham as well. El Shaddai. You've, you've seen that before, haven't you? There's a song. There's a song, just El Shaddai. The whole song is about El Shaddai. But so God Almighty, the English, we translated from the Hebrew as God Almighty, El Shaddai. So God is saying, I'm not only El, I'm not only Elohim, I'm not only Yahweh, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty, which is a title that affirms his power and his majesty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Okay, the first part of the Abrahamic promise. Abraham, I am going to make from you descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. So he says to Jacob, it's really interesting, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your body. Is that true? Yes, dozens of them. The kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. And the most important of all those, King David. But it also has the implication of another king. Who? King Jesus. Who, remember, is identified in the first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. He's the king. And so, I mean, that's just, don't miss that. There's tremendous implications for you and me as we read this. You, you and I really understand what this means. Jacob just heard the promise. He believed the promise. 
But you and I know the names of some of these kings. We know these people. We know prophetically what this really means. That's kind of sort of exciting. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but it's just it's an exciting thing to see. He is making a promise to Jacob that he's made to Abraham and Isaac, but he's just adding it. Kings are going to come from your loins, Jacob. Daryl. We can assume that uh, as far as the nation, that's going to be Israel. Yes. A company of nations, uh, are there groups of peoples that we would recognize now as being from that lineage? <clears throat> um, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of how I want to answer this. Um, God had said to him, to Abraham in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 17, that he would be the father of many nations. Now, coming from Abraham, Sarah dies. Sarah mar- uh, Abraham then marries Keturah. And there are a whole other group of peoples that come out of that. So out of, out of all of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there will be many nations that will come from you. One is a covenant nation, Israel, but there will be others. Okay, so it would really be more through Abraham. Correct. Correct. But they are related to the the bloodline of Jacob and so on. Um, I mean, it's just, it's it's a marvelous reiteration of what God had promised to Abraham, his grandfather, that is Jacob's grandfather. And now he's just adding a little bit of this idea of kings. That's not specifically stated to Abraham, but it is to Jacob. And I mean, you and I know what this means. I don't know if Jacob did completely. He used to think about, oh my, kings. But there's there's no evidence of doubt. Yes, yes, Lord. And the other thing is verse 12. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now you have to go back to Genesis 17 again, where God had laid out the boundaries of the land. This is the land of Canaan. It's everything. He said to Abraham, look as far north as you can, as far south as you can, as far west as you can, as far east as you can, that's what I'm going to give you. Where is Jacob? Jacob is in Bethel. He's on the west side of the Jordan River Valley. And he's standing there and God says, I told Abraham and I told Isaac, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this land and your offspring. Where will Jacob die? You know, you just don't know you know. Where will Jacob die? He will die in Egypt. Right? He will die in Egypt. Because we're going to start, maybe this week, but definitely next, we're going to start the narrative about Joseph. And the key aspect of Joseph, biblically, in terms of God's redemptive plan, is that's how the clan of Jacob gets down to Egypt. That's how they get down there, because Joseph is the second in line of Pharaoh in Egypt and brings them down. And so Jacob is buried, uh, Jacob um, dies, and then is taken back by Joseph to be buried in Machpelah. So it's just sort of exciting how all this keeps being tied together. But he says something here to your offspring. His 12 sons, 12, (laughs) his 12 (laughs) sons, I can't make 12 out of 10 fingers. His 12 sons, they will inhabit the land. And then all the descendants of his 12 sons, which become the children of Israel. So, I mean, it's just kind of an exciting reiteration of the promise, but you and I are closer to the fulfillment of that promise in terms of the biblical narrative than Abraham was. Because Jacob will see his clan begin to explode in growth, and then he'll die. All right. I just want you to get excited about this. Verse 13, And when it got up from him in the place where he had spoken to him, and God, excuse me, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Now, you, you, for you and me, that's, it's hard to see that, but this is worship. 
He builds this memorial, this pillar of stone, this memorial to God, this worship center of God, and pours an oblation over it, a drink offering over it. Now, again, this specific nature of worship is going to be implemented in the law in Leviticus. But already you have these people who walk with God are doing it. They're offering sacrifices and are pouring drink offerings out to God. So what's going on here? Jacob is dedicating this place to God. He's worshiping with his family to God at Beit El, the house of God, which has triumphed over an old Canaanite city. It's sort of exciting. God is completing the plan that he started with Abraham. All right. Got it? I think it's sort of exciting stuff, I know. So you've got to make the Old Testament really come alive, which is my job in this class. Verse 16, let's complete chapter, well, I don't know if we can do it, but I think we can. Let's complete chapter 35, and then we're going to cover chapter 36 in 60 seconds. Then they journeyed from Beit El, when they were still some distance, some translations have about two hours from Eprath, Eprath is early Bethlehem. So, if you are in your map, Beit El, they're going farther south along the Jordan Valley. They're in the hills, so they're in the hills because Bethlehem sits high on a hill. It's about 2,000 feet above sea level. Eprath is an early settlement for Bethlehem. And Rachel went into labor. It doesn't tell us why he went there. It doesn't explain to us why they went south, but they did. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her son was departing, parenthesis, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni in Hebrew means son of sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which is Hebrew for son of strength. Can understand why Rachel calls him son of sorrow? She is going to die giving birth to him. Jacob's going to say, after she passed, no, I want to call him Benjamin, son of my strength. Verse 19, so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. I wish I could take you now with me on another tour of Israel. And Bethlehem is now under the control of the Palestinian Authority. But as you enter the, the crossover point, where Palestinian guards and uh, Israeli guards will come on the bus and look at where you pass, and we cross into Bethlehem, as soon as you go through the gate, on the right is a large memorial dedicated to Rachel. That is historically where they say Rachel was buried. And the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Muslims honor her as much as the Jews and Christians honor her because she is part of that prophetic line. Because to Islam, Abraham was the first prophet to acknowledge Allah. Now, I'm not quite reading that in Genesis 12, but that's... And then so is Isaac and Jacob. They're part of that prophetic line. So they honor these people for very different reasons. So I'm just telling you, because that Ra- Rachel is a very important person. And where she's buried, she's buried right on the outskirts of Bethlehem, yeah. according to the text. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I'm getting the itch. I said my last trip was 2014. I'm getting the urge to go back. I just, it's hard. So Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, and it's a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. When Moses wrote that, he's just saying it's still there. 
And Israel journeyed on. Now, who's Israel? Jacob. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. We really do not know exactly what that means. We really don't. But because he's headed for Hebron, it's assumed that's somewhere between Bethlehem and Hebron. So I, we just don't know exactly what that means. All right, now, something else happens here that I really want to stress before we're done. But I want to review with you what's happened here in this very important chapter. One, we're introduced to the new Jacob. He's a changed man. And he now fulfills his promise to God to go down to Bethel, Bethel, down to Bethel, which he does. But he leads his family by getting rid of the idols and all that stuff. They cleanse themselves. Then this immensely important conversation again with God, where God reiterates his covenant name and reiterates the promise. And then you have Rachel. Benjamin's born, the twelfth son of Jacob. But she dies. Another evidence of the patriarchal era coming to an end. Because Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, now not Rachel's nurse, Rebecca's nurse. Rebecca, remember, is Jacob's mom. Remember that? So, I mean, this, is, this chapter is a really important chapter of transition. But something else has to happen. It's a very dark. It's about Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. And in the ancient world, the firstborn always received a double portion of the inheritance. So the text tells us something. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now remember, Israel is Jacob. Now, why is that important? It's an important piece of information that is crucial for things that are going to happen later in the Old Testament narrative. Reuben's the firstborn. He lays with... he. It doesn't say he rapes her, so this may have been consensual. But his Bilhah, we admitted this to her earlier. Why is he doing that? Is it out of lust? Or is it out of a desire to replace Jacob as the head of the clan? Because Jacob is getting older. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what motivates him here because it could be he wants to replace Jacob as head of the household. He doesn't want to wait. Because you might remember, this is again, I don't know if you remember all this from other Old Testament texts, when Absalom rebels against David and he takes Jerusalem, what's the very first thing he does? Openly lays with David. David's wives. That was an ancient Near Eastern tradition. I am replacing David. So is that what Reuben's doing here? He's the firstborn. Instead of waiting till Jacob dies, I'm going to try to usurp his position now. Or is it just lust? The text doesn't tell us, but Israel finds out. Do you know what's going to happen to Reuben? Reuben will lose the position of firstborn. Who gets the double portion? Joseph. Joseph's two boys will then share in that inheritance. Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. What I just said probably confused you. I didn't want to confuse you. But you see, that becomes really important for the end of chapter uh, the end of the book of Genesis, and as we get later into Exodus and into Joshua, the conquest. Why doesn't Reuben get the double portion? Because of this event. He loses that right. And it will go to Joseph and his two boys 
And if you take the total amount of land that Manasseh and Ephraim get, they together get the two largest land grabs after the conquest under Joshua. Isn't that exciting how all this ties together in Scripture? Joe, what do you want? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Nothing that significant now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kind of curious. Reuben is the oldest. Yeah, that's right. He's the firstborn. Joseph is the 11th son. That's right. Why is not son number two perhaps uh, the heir apparent? Because Jacob chooses to give it to Joseph. And we will learn more details we about that. We will learn that at the end of the book. Is that customary? Uh, yes. I mean, in, in terms of, by customary, you mean for the father to decide who gets yeah. the double portion? Yes. Yes. Joseph was the first son of Rachel. That's correct. Was Jacob's baby. That's right. Oh. That's right. Is that the and then Benjamin, well, that, I think that's the reason he chooses him. That's right. And then Benjamin was just born in the narrative. Yeah. Woody, Woody, Woody really pays attention. Woody, he just he's sharp. He's now that you, now that you sit closer. See, yeah. what's happening? So that for now, that's all. It's just keep that verse in your hat. What happens to Reuben? This is really important for what happens to Reuben later on. Now, I'm not going to necessarily read this, but the next uh, set. Now, these are the sons of Jacob were 12, and it just goes through the sons of Leah. I gave you that chart. Joe has it right here. Remember that I gave you a couple of weeks ago? It's just summarizing that. Each one of these four women, who to whom do they give birth? It just summarizes it. So verse 27, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Remember that? They're headed down there. Er, Abram and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We'll learn later on chapter 49, where did they bury him? They bury him next to Abraham and Sarah in Machpelah, that cave outside of Hebron that Abraham had bought. So now, this chapter is an important chapter. In terms of the passing of the patriarchs, Deborah, Rebecca's servant, Rebecca, uh, uh, Rebecca's, uh, Deborah, Rebecca's servant, Rachel, and now Isaac have all passed away. So we're nearing the end of the patriarchal era, and it's just the text is just telling us that. All right, that's great. We still have about six minutes, but I want to cover chapter 36 in 60 seconds. But I want to see, do you have any other questions uh, or any comments or whatever? About chapter 35. It's really a quite important chapter. Yeah, Joe. We haven't talked about Isaac for a while. Where no, we haven't. He, where is he at when he dies? Hebron. Oh, yeah, he's down, he's yeah, right there. yeah, he's down in Hebron. Okay. And he, he, had, he had been there. He, um, um, Abraham had pitched his tent in Beersheba, and then Isaac, and that's not that far, but he, he um, settles and, and will, will live in Hebron. That's where he died. Yeah. It talks about them, uh, his sons Isaac and Jacob buried them. They were in different locations. That's right. Somehow they have a communication. That's right. How, how yeah. Well, remember, Esau, Edom is south of the Dead Sea. It's, 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 so they would, have, they would have had to have a runner, which is often how things were done. A runner would have gone and told Esau, your father is dead. And so he would have then traveled up. You know, actually... From Hebron to the, the, the border of, of Edom is not that far. I mean, it's far, but it's not that far. Probably about 60 miles. I mean, that's far, but it's not that far. And so um, it's just, again, you see the two boys coming together. Presumably, they would have had the, the ceremony of, of burying uh, Isaac. And as I said, chapter 49 will tell us they buried Isaac was buried in... Machpelah with Abraham and Sarah. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Question, something we talked about, the, the rings, the yeah, yeah. under the tree. Uh, there have been mentioned before about his uncle, the divination. Is that also where he's putting that to them as well? Excellent comment. Excellent question. You know, that is really good. You don't see that again in the family. You do not see that again. I think Jacob is... That's, as some have suggested, that's the significance of it, but he's burying it, burying it in terms of the family. It will not come up again. Yep. Now, it will come up in Israel, 
I mean, the people. But in the family, you will not see it again. You will not see it again. That's right. Now, chapter 36. Uh, were there any other questions? I don't think so. Chapter 36. Uh, I'm not going to really cover that. All this is is the genealogy of Esau. Now, genealogies are really important in the scriptures, and the genealogies here is just establishing all of the connector points in other parts of the Old Testament about the Edomites. Because remember, Edom, which again, geographically, is south of the Dead Sea, and that's where I, sorry, that's where where Esau had settled. And so his descendants, which are now accounted for in chapter 36, uh, settle in Edom and will populate that whole... It's a very rugged area. I told you this. When, uh, when we're standing in the south, we always our hotels are always in the very southern end of the Dead Sea, which is an absolutely gorgeous area. But if you just stand on your hotel uh, you know, uh, porch or whatever and just look south, you see the Red Mountains of Edom. And they are red. Not, not, I mean, not red like those trees out there, but a hue of red. It's very clear, because Edom means red. And so it's very distinctive. And Edom and the Edomites will become historic enemies of Israel. They will become one of the major enemies of the children of Israel. And you'll see it immediately as Moses, now this is fast-forwarding into the book of Exodus, but as Moses brings the children of Israel up from Arabia and headed toward the promise, remember the Edomites won't let them pass through. And God says, I'll take care of them. And it will be King Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquers Judah in 586, he will basically wipe out the Edomites. And then that area, that area then will become the origin of Idumea, which uh, I shouldn't have said that, but it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting piece. All chapter 36 is telling us is these are descendants of Esau, they're settling in Edom, you'll see them again. Now, if you have time, read chapter 37, because here we're introduced to Joseph. And the whole tone of Genesis changes. Because now the focus is on this singular individual and his character. And chapter 37 through chapter 50, it's almost like the wisdom literature, the Psalms and Proverbs. And you have a man who lives in an area, Egypt. Chapter 37 explains to us how he gets down there. But in the middle of a very, very pagan nation. Egypt. And it has to explain to us, how does this man who walks with God, who represents the one true and only God, how does he live in that kind of civilization? Follow me? Isaac didn't have to struggle with that. Jacob didn't have to struggle with that. Abraham came from that in Ur the Chaldees. How's Joseph? And Joseph is like Daniel, a man of impeccable character. Nothing negative is said of Joseph in the scriptures. Just like nothing negative is said of Daniel in the scriptures. Joseph is one of those individuals that is the epitome of a man who walks with God, regardless of the circumstances. That's how I want to go through this material. We're going to deal with all the history of it. But I want to keep drawing each day a takeaway. What do we learn about the character traits of this extraordinary man, Joseph? And how did, he, how did Joseph know about the Lord? Well, I, well, I think he would have to make that personal decision. But remember, I mean, he is he is he is younger than the others. Benjamin's the youngest, but he is raised uh, by. Um, uh, by Jacob and, and Rachel before she passes away. But he sees the change in his father. I'm making, I, I'm making some inferences. But I think Joseph, uh, and, and Joseph makes the decision, unlike his other brothers, Joseph makes the decision to walk with God and to be faithful to God. Reuben didn't. You'll see Judah doesn't. Well, he could be Israel. 
Yes, yes, yes. We got to quit. Lord, thank you for this study um, in the life of Jacob. We're basically done with it. Now we shift to Joseph, one of his sons. But what we see, I just love that section we just studied because here we see Joseph really is a changed man. Uh, Jacob really is a changed man. And what happened to him in Genesis 32 was real. And although he still has flaws like all of us do, he was being transformed by your grace. And that's one of the main points, as well as a lot of other historical connectors that are so necessary for the rest of our study. So take care of these men as they go their separate ways. Bless them in all of their their activities, their businesses, their responsibilities and family, whether as grandparents, uh, whatever, as well as just their opportunities with everyone they met, meet to represent you. May they do that well in what they say and what they do. To the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.